Welcome to This Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek. I'm here with Janet Aliker. Janet, how are you? I'm good, thanks, Josh. How are you? I'm very good and glad to meet you. We just met and you took the, you know, I'm a sucker for initiative. I wrote a book called Initiative and you're a listener and you wrote in and you said that you've been listening to this podcast for a long, long time. You love it. And you suggested having guests on, uh, listeners on as guests so that other listeners could hear how other listeners felt about the podcast. And I thought that sounded like a great idea. So I said, how about you? And you said, I forget how you responded. Do you you remember how you responded? Well, I was just pleased to get the email that you responded to my idea. And then you said, yeah, let's give it a try. Would I be willing to be the first listener? And I said, yeah, absolutely. You know, be thrilled to because I've been listening to it for a long time. um, Really enjoy the podcast. And yeah, it has influenced me a lot as well. So yeah, really pleased to do it. I really want to hear about those things. And we came up with some questions beforehand, but first I'm going to read the bio that you sent me and you're humble about it uh, saying, Oh, there's not much that I've done, but I'm going to read it anyway. So you wrote, uh, I grew up in Southern England and came to Sheffield, Northern England for university in the 1980s. My main reason for staying in Sheffield is the close access to the peak district national park. I've worked in academia, healthcare and charities, and more recently for the UK government department for work and pensions which covers welfare and employment support. My hobbies are yoga, modern, modern jive dancing, I like reading that, and walking in the Peak District. I have post-viral fatigue, which means I need to get my head every lunchtime. Head down, yeah. I have to go to bed. Yeah, take naps, oh. yeah. yeah. Okay, every lunchtime. <laughs> Listening to podcasts are a big part of my day. So, yeah, so, basically. Yeah, so what I was trying to say there was because I have to lie in the dark because of my uh, chronic fatigue, I listen to podcasts. Uh, when I'm lying in the dark to recharge my battery. So that's how I've got into podcasts. Well, I'm, I'm gonna, let's start off with uh, how did you find about this sustainable life? Or when you started listening to it, it was probably leadership in the environment. Yeah, I found out about it because I heard about the the company um, Loop and TerraCycle. And I was looking at something online about that company and the CEO, Tom, is it Zasky or something? Yeah. And... Uh, and I was reading about that. So I just um, did a search on my podcast app to see if there were any interviews with him. And, and the one that you did with him, I think was in 2018, came up. I forget when you did it. But anyway, I listened to that. And then once I'd listened to that one episode with him in, I started to listen to your podcast regularly. So, yeah, I think it was around sort of August, September 2018 when I first started listening. I remember that one with with Tom, he was, we, we were supposed to meet for this event and the event didn't quite happen, but we recorded really cool guy. Yeah. Very, very interesting sort of story how he got into it. And uh, I think they're starting to do some stuff in the UK now, trying to hook up with some of the supermarkets and stuff, you know, to try and get that loop service available here because they're trying to expand it wherever they can. It's a great idea. Did that interview talk about his Princeton stuff with the rotting... The, with oh, yeah, the, the cannabis or something. Yeah, making the manure for the uh, cannabis plants, wasn't it? I don't know if it was for cannabis, but he, uh. Uh, I know that he got compost. He got scraps from the, the dining hall at Princeton University, and he, he, was, he bought some composting machine, and the composting machine came late. It was the summer. The food was already fermenting in the, in the barrels, and there were all these maggots. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. And... Does that ring a bell? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
that's funny because I volunteer with this food organization here in New York and no one else really gets composting, but there's a compost bin. So I have to take it to, um, I have to carry it a couple blocks to Union Square to drop it off. And I was just thinking the other day how I dropped it off and there were a whole bunch of maggots in it. And I was like, oh, just like Tom. <laughs> I got to get back in touch with him and tell him how I'm also carrying rotting vegetables with maggots in them and dumping them off with a horrible smell. I don't know whether your science background makes you less squeamish about things like that, because, you know, I imagine that you're interested in all the sort of biological processes and things that happen with composting. And when you can look at things in a scientific way, you know, you're less, I don't know, I'm just speculating here that maybe you're sort of less squeamish about the smell and the maggots and all that kind of thing, because it's all processes, isn't it? Well, my mom grew up on a farm, at least some of her childhood was on a farm. And so whenever we were in a place where there was the smell of manure, she'd go, ah, that's the smell of farm. You know, for me, a lot of people associate physics with this advanced um, white coats and all the technology. And I worked on a satellite. But for me, physics is fundamentally, it's a study of nature at its most basic level. To me, it's beauty. And there's an aesthetic joy to it. So there is an, an aesthetic joy to me to, yeah, the natural processes. You know, biology wasn't my thing, but uh, in, in terms of academics, but it's still nature and it's still beautiful. And I'm, I see a beauty in the, yeah, I don't see a beauty. In, I mean, I can if I look for it in putting the vegetables into a landfill or the scraps, but I prefer letting them become food for the next generation of plants and along the way, food for the fungus and the, maggots and whatever eats up the plant matter yeah I think uh, because I I mean I started off doing science at university and then went did psychology in the end but I think when you talk about things sort of science of things and the processes and stuff I think that's inspired me because I think understanding or thinking about the systems the Gaia and all the different things that are happening in the natural environment and how you can do good or bad to those processes, I think it's helped hooked me in to, ha- to, to reduce my pollution a bit. Because I think it's, uh, how can I put it? It's, it, you know, it's a good thing to do, but also if it's something that's interesting, you know, then it's even more motivating to do it because you're sort of, you're hooking into the sort of the science and the interest of it, as well as the actual good deed, if you like, of reducing your pollution. Regarding collecting food scraps and composting them, there's, I will always say it this way, there's something oddly satisfying about it. In New York, most people don't have yards, so we have to collect our food scraps and then drop them off at a place that collects them. So for me, that's usually Union Square or not far as another place called Abington Square. And here's what happens here is most people freeze this stuff and then carry it, I don't know, like half a mile, a mile to drop it off. So when I drop it off, I'm dumping my frozen vegetables. I mean, now my fridge is off, so I'm not using, I'm not freezing them, but I'm dropping off my vegetables and other people dropping off their vegetables and we can, or scraps. And we can see what we've been eating for the past week or so. And we both, and anyone there has also gone out of their way to carry it there. So there's, it's always a fun connection. If I talk to someone there, we always meet and we have a lovely conversation. I associate that with it. Ah, that's great. Yeah. It's really social. It ends up being that way. Yeah. And to me, there's an elegance to it. When I save food that would have, like, I, you know, all this volunteering, I'm, I'm getting food that would have been thrown away. And 
when I say food, to me, that's an elegance to it. That yeah. I like that. It's very pleasing to me. Yeah. It feels good. Yeah. So you said Tom Zaki was, a, that sets, it must've been after that, that you started listening, but how, when did you start listening? Do you remember when it was? Oh, I, I say, I think it was uh, the summer of 2018. So maybe se- August, September, I think. Have you listened to, how many of the episodes have you listened to? I mean, oh, do you gosh. listen to every one that's come out or do you go back and listen to old ones or? Uh, I go back to listen to, to, to a lot of old ones. I don't know whether I've listened to every single one, but I've listened to a lot. Any favorites? Um, do you, uh, yeah, actually broadly between the solo episodes and the guest episodes, any preference? I like both. I listen to the guest episodes more, but I do listen to the solo episodes as well, but not as much as the guest episodes because I think I like just generally when I'm listening, just, just me personally, when I'm listening to podcasts, I like following a conversation. I just like the to and fro. Do you know what I mean? I just, yeah. So that's what I, that's what I tend to when I listen to podcasts. Um, the guy that you've had on recently, the um, rower, who was like an athlete. Um, oh, the British um, Etienne Stark. No, the, no, yeah, there's a canoeist guy, but he was really interesting. But also there was an uh, American guy, a guy in the US. Oh, Blake. Blake Haxton? Yeah, and um, I think he has some disability Lost issues. two legs. Yeah, yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. I oh really love the way you two talk. I could just listen to it for hours because it's like, for me, it feels like you're on similar wavelengths and the way that you explore subjects and go off into different areas and then go off somewhere else. Yeah, I love all that. That's really fascinating for me. He's one of actually many that have become friends. I mean, he and I have spoken besides the recordings. And I just, the number of times I've said to people how there's this guy, Blake Haxton, and he goes to the hospital or he, his leg hurt. He goes to the doctor and the doctor's like, hospital immediately, go now the second and wakes up, I think a hundred days later, lost two legs to flesh eating disease. They had moved him into this hospital room, not to save his life, but just to keep him alive long enough. So his brother could see him before he died. Like that's how close he was to death. Oh, I didn't know his backstory. Right. Okay. Oh yeah. Watch his Ted talk. And um, I think the link to it is, I mean, you can look it up, but I think it's the link to it is in my episode notes. And one of the things he says is like, Josh, I've had a pretty lucky life. And I'm like, you lost your legs. He goes, yeah, yeah. There was, that was unlucky. I'm like, that's a pretty big unlucky thing. He goes, yeah, but mostly lucky. Talk about a way of looking at life that we can, that anyone can learn from. Yeah. There's another story about that. When I, I told my mom, my mom reads my blog, but doesn't listen to all the episodes. She doesn't listen to many podcasts. And I told her about Blake. And I said, you might want to listen to that episode. And he's just back from winning the silver medal at the Paralympics. And she knows about my not flying and she flies and she goes, ah, but how did he get to the Olympics? Thinking like checkmate about the flying. Oh, right. And I'm like, well, that wasn't his th- environment. wasn't his thing at the time. And in any case, the Olympics have been around for thousands of years. They're, we can have Olympics without flying. Yeah. Yeah. Any other favorite episodes or guests? Um, I thought it was fascinating when you had the guy from McDonald's. Oh, a long time ago, yeah. That was a long time ago. But I find those really interesting where it's a, a company that's very polluting and, you know, what they're doing and what their plans are. I think every time you get, you know, a guest like that, it's it's great because it's, you know, you're getting into the sort of real corridors of power, really. And just generally, I think 
I think you've talked about this a fair bit on the podcast when you're talking about how those people who are the CEOs and chief executives of those big polluting companies, that they have kids, or they might have kids, you know, they've got gardens, they've got, they're experiencing stuff every day and their kids are, you know, telling them stuff about what's upsetting them. And, you know, they're, they're still all connected into the Gaia and it's just trying to, it feels like when you're talking to those people, what, to me, the way I'm listening to it and understanding it, it's like you're helping them reconnect back into the Gaia, into nature, which was always there, but they kind of lost it along the way and just sort of, you know, pushed it out of their minds. This is very gratifying to hear because a lot of people think I'm spitting in the wind on this. Have I shared on the podcast, I think maybe episode 500 covered this, which was the big episode that I did about the strategy, how it's evolved, but how Nelson Mandela inspires me in that area. Yeah, remind me, tell me again. When Nelson Mandela was imprisoned, as far as he knew for the rest of his life, he began to learn Afrikaans, which I think people saw as learning the language of his oppressor. What's, what's that about? Yeah. And my understanding was that he viewed them not as enemies. The system was the problem. And there are other people who also don't want the system there. And he wanted to work with them. And ultimately, when he won the Nobel Peace Prize, he shared it with de Klerk, who was the president of, the, of an apartheid nation. Uh-huh. And I don't view the CEOs of big polluting companies and the you know, decision makers and the board members, they're people too. They don't want this. They want clean air. Yeah. They want clean water. And they may believe that burning fossil fuels or polluting whatever is, is the best way forward. It's possible I can learn from them. Maybe they know something I don't. And maybe I'm wrong. Alternatively, maybe they can learn something from me. If I'm not open to learning from them, they're not going to be open to learning from me. But if they are polluting and they do want to pollute less, I think that I will always support organizations like 350.org, Extinction Rebellion, for protesting. But I think if someone's addicted to something, simply pointing out the addiction, I think compassion and empathy, helping hand role models, someone who has been through that transition before, I think is essential for them to change. Otherwise, they will do what they're doing, which is circling the wagons and protecting themselves. Yeah, absolutely. I think the way that you help people find things that aren't a chore, that things that they enjoy, that things that make them feel young again or make them feel connected to nature again is really, really good because that, you know, that's not the whole of their lives, but that can be part of their lives. And from a small, I think you say this often, from like a small thing, if you enjoy it, then you're motivated to do more. Um, And I think that that's been the main biggest influence for me listening to your podcast is trying to find things that are nice to do and reduce pollution. And I'm not super optimistic. I don't want suffering. I don't want humans to suffer, Uh, but I'm not super optimistic that we will change our ways in time before, you know, catastrophes will happen. I think it's too late for certain things anyway. So when I'm motivated to do something, 
such as, I don't know, use the car a lot less or, you know, buy less packaged food and stuff like that. I want to feel the buzz from it there and then, because I don't know whether it's ever going to make much difference in the long term. But by listening to your podcast, I've been able to find that immediate buzz, find that immediate reward, regardless of the future. Yeah, I'm going to clarify what you mentioned there, that a lot of people hear small versus big. And a lot of people say, Josh, I love what you do. You get people to do the small things. And it kills me when I hear that because I, I have to clarify that there's so much messaging out there of so many people saying, here's one little thing you can do, or here's 10 little things you can do for the environment, implying that you don't really want to do it. So that, that's how I'm giving you something little and hoping, as I actually, I began the podcast this way, for people who listen to early episodes, the first dozen or maybe even hundred, I was coer- CCCSC, convincing, cajoling, coercing, seeking compliance. These things are, that's what you do when this person doesn't want to do it. And for me, the access is not big versus little. It's intrinsic versus extrinsic. And intrinsic, I don't see people, you know, if I tell you what happens at one degree, two degrees, three degrees, or what's happening in the coastline of some country where, or that's all abstract. It's not, someone's personal experience. And it generally is around outrage and things that people want to stop, but they don't feel like they're doing those things. If we can connect with what people really care about, it may be some little apple tree that at the end of the block when they grew up, but if that's what's in their heart, that's what motivates people. That's leadership that you can't inspire through outrage. You can inspire through an apple tree though. Yeah, outrage isn't a nice feeling to feel. You want to feel nice feelings. And I think one of the many things that your podcast has sort of influenced me was I tried being vegan back in the early 90s, and it was quite difficult then in the early 90s, you know, because getting things like plant milk and stuff like that or whatever. Anyway, so in early 2019, I thought I'm going to give it another go. And now I'm probably like 95%, you know. Every now and again, I might have something non-vegan, but you know, listening to you and sort of it helped me connect with my true feelings about the cruelty to animals. So regardless of the impact on the environment, I just thought, oh, I don't want to be part of this. I just don't want to be part of that industry of cruelty and murder. Mm, no. So, so that was, that was already there, like not wanting to be part of something. But then when you were sort of talking about it and talking about trying to sort of connect back to what's important then I just thought yeah I just you know let you know I mean I say it's 95 percent it's a lot better than it was in terms of uh eating vegan I mean I wouldn't haven't had meat since 1990 but anyway and then I mean other things like the packaging you know the creativity of going into a shop and thinking right well what can I buy you know, how can I reduce the single-use plastic? So I was in a shop the other day. I wanted to get some hummus. I was thinking, no, you don't need to buy that. Get a tin of chickpeas, make it yourself, and play around with some flavors. And, you know, it's creativity. It's it's kind of more fun than the sort of that dirty feeling. If I've bought something that's single-use packaging and then that's going into the trash or going into the recycling and I know it's not going to be recycled. It's just, it's not a nice feeling. 
So that's where I'm saying it gives you an, an immediate sort of reward because you're avoiding that that unpleasant feeling. Yeah, you were talking about the measure of how much vegan you are by quantity. What resonated with me was the emotional uh, motivation, the, the, the emotional connection that you're getting from it. Because that, to me, the numbers will work out. You know, coaches always say this in sports. Not always, but like the ones that I really like. Do your best, reach your potential, and the score will work itself out. And Ah, yeah, that makes sense. All these people focusing on like, oh, we'll be net zero by 2050, which is like, do your best. The numbers work work themselves out, but like work on intrinsic motivation and leadership and inspiration and finding the joy in things. Then, I mean, I dropped 90% in two and a half years. And I, that wasn't my goal. That was just me enjoying life, finding, you know, acting on what, what I cared about. Anyone can, you know, that was after I was already vegan and after I was already uh, living in Manhattan, I don't drive. So the two things that most people could cut down the most, I didn't have available to me. And yet I dropped 90%. So other, anyone could do that. But the point isn't the dropping 90%. The point is acting on my passion for, you know, not polluting or for appreciating nature for, I mean, I started with it, not, not avoiding packaged food, but it quickly became making food from scratch and discovering vegetables. Because I, I, at that time, I, I just started joining a CSA, meaning I would pick up a delivery of vegetables every week. And I didn't know what they were until I got them. And I was not going to let anything go to waste. So that means if I get a tomatillo and I don't know what a tomatillo is, I got to figure it out and make it delicious. Yeah, same here. I have a, a, a like a, a veg delivery. So it's just random what appears. So you have to, yeah, uh, use your creativity, which is nice. Um, and uh, I think, yeah, it makes you, it's empowering really to sort of use your creativity to sort of work on your way around things and how can I do something a bit different? I mean, I use a, a zero waste shop and you know, I get lots of, you know, things like nuts and seeds and oats and so on. And, but I was buying, I was taking bottles to get two different products, one for washing my dishes and one for washing my hair. And I didn't like the shampoo, this from the zero waste shop. And I thought, I'm just going to use the washing up liquid. And it's great. <laughs> so I'm just buying the one product now. And it's just like that, just small little things like that where where you're just using your own initiative and you're just being a bit flexible. And I think another way that your podcast has influenced me is that stopping and thinking about anything that you buy. You know, do you need it? Could you get by without it? Is there something you could mend instead? You know, there are sustainable industries out there. It's not like no consumption at all, but it's about how much of that human labor and all the, how much of the, the economy goes through polluting buying and selling rather than sustainable buying and selling. Some hearing that, probably not listeners to this podcast, but others might hear that and think, I don't want to deal with all those things. I don't want, I mean, it's nice if I want to, but what if I just want to buy some hummus? Isn't it a burden? <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, I mean, if they say it's a burden, what would you say? Um, I would say that it's about sort of doing what makes you feel good. So it might be that you might might not want to sort of cut back on eating your hummus at the boat, you know, buying packaged hummus for, at the moment. But you might find that some of those trips that you did to the shops, you could maybe do on a bike or you could walk. I don't know. I think I've got sort of 
a weird angle on it where I just feel like it's so mammoth, there's so much that needs to be changed in our everyday life that you might as well focus on the things that you enjoy and that you, once you start doing them, you want to do them more because, well, I, I think you've probably said this before, that if you try and do something that you don't enjoy or do too much at once, then you could just not do anything. But that's cool as well. It's down to the individual. It has to be down to the individual about whether it makes them feel better. And I think deep down, I think a big chunk of the population would rather be part of the solution than part of the problem. If you really sort of could connect deep down to people, I think that would be the case. So many people say, yeah, but the, you have to think of how to change the whole world. It has got to scale. It's got to change global systems. And if you work on the individual, then, well, that's not worth any difference and not, don't bother. And I think that's how they excuse themselves from not doing anything themselves. Yeah, I guess so. But, you know, things are changing all the time. And, and if someone sort of witnesses something or hears about something that someone else is doing, they might they might sort of look at it again and think, do you know what, maybe I could just walk to the that friend's house or cycle to that shop. As I was saying earlier, in my head, it's like I have to sort of put the future of everything out of the picture. It's just, is there nice things that people can do that they'll get their immediate reward from, regardless of whether, you know, what happens in the future? Because it's just the here and now, isn't it? Like, how can you sort of enjoy that sustainable life? Someday I'm going to have on the podcast the CEOs of BP and Exxon and McDonald's. And when they start talking this way, they're going to not just think about how they can... I mean, they will start with their own personal behaviors. That will spread to their own relationships and the people closest to them outside of work. And then it will go into work and everything will change. Definitely. Every possible outcome is possible. And I think that, you know, this we've changed a lot. We've changed our behavior in lots of different ways. I think you talk about this a lot in the podcast. Humans can make significant changes. So it's great that, you know, that the work continues and that, that you know, people are doing what they do. So We've been describing how the podcast influenced you, but how has the podcast influenced your daily life and stewardship? Um, I think the stewardship concept is interesting because even sort of outside the environment, just sort of trying to keep healthy exercise and sort of eat healthy and that kind of thing. That's another form of stewardship. And, you know, we're all part of the Gaia. So sort of looking after your own biology, you know, it's even inspired that. I mean, I mentioned about, you know, becoming virtually vegan and the, using the car less. And, and I would just say sort of, sort of taking a moment and seeing like, as I mentioned before, that how you can sort of be a bit creative in terms of avoiding the plastic, uh, picking up litter. I would have done that before, but I'm more motivated to do it. Uh, but I do, and I think I'm repeating myself, I apologise, but I do keep in my head what you say about you don't want anything to become a chore. So it's very much about what feels nice to do. And part of it feeling nice, if you're sort of not buying single-use plastic, is knowing that you're sort of 
in a very small way, reducing the amount of plastic that's going to be burnt or dumped in landfill or, you know, generally polluting the environment. And that is a nice feeling, as I say, regardless of the sort of the bigger picture. Yeah, when you said in one small way you're acting, I would suggest saying switching that to in one joyful way you're acting. Small or big is not the point. And for me, it's joy. Joy for other people's freedom or um, connection with family or love or um, satisfaction or you know it's. But if it's a rewarding emotion, I, I I propose making that the identification of what you do as opposed to the scale of it. Yes, no, I do understand what you're saying. I was involved in Sheffield. We had a big issue here because the council were wanting to cut down a lot of the street trees, and I was involved in the campaign there. Um, to save the trees, you know, 100-year-old trees and absolutely gorgeous trees that shouldn't, didn't need to be cut down. And there were elements of that campaign which were really enjoyable. And it was like I found that, you know, the, to try and find bits of the campaign that you were enjoyed more was that what kept people motivated. The battle side of things isn't enjoyable. You know, trying, like you were saying earlier, trying to stop people do stuff. That's not fun. Protesting, not for me anyway. It's not, you know, so it's about what can you do that is uh, is kind of going with the flow, not going against the flow. How about relationships with others? It has your listening to the podcast led you to talk to people differently or interact with people differently or enlist them? Um, just trying to encourage, you know, like my partner to have more vegan food and he, you know he does enjoy it and you know talking about together how we can sort of reduce pollution and stuff like that there's a lot further I could go if you saw to me I used back in the 90s so I said I tried being vegan then and I was I didn't have a car then and I wouldn't buy anything packaged and I'd pick up you know even like orange peel on the on the pavement and take it back to the compost heap and all stuff like that. And I got to a point in the nineties and I didn't get on a plane for a long time. And I think at that time it was like, I was getting myself into this ball of frustration. Whereas now it's a different approach. And I suppose at that time, going back to what you're asking, saying how, you know, how would talk about it to other people at that time, in the 90s, I might have got sort of frustrated with people like, oh, you know, you've got to change the way you're doing things and sort of hassle them because I was trying to make an effort at that point. And I was, you know, my general level of pollution was lower then than it is now because I was making, you know, more of an effort to reduce my level of pollution and so on. But it wasn't sustainable because I was getting into a a pattern of sort of frustration and sort of nagging people. Whereas now it's more about trying to do what you do. So for example, my partner's joined a local environmental group where he lives. And I've said, well, you know, could I come along and one of your meetings and bring some vegan food and it'd be like a little bit of a vegan night to sort of encourage, I don't know, you know, what, where they are in that, in that group, but you know, like, be a bit more flexitarian and have more vegan meals during the week for these individuals because they're, you know, this group, this local environment group are talking about how they can reduce their pollution and so on. So, so that's a nice thing. It's trying to be a joyful thing, you know, going around there with little vegan treats to eat. Does that make sense? 
I think so. I'm also curious if I'm hearing that it went from intense but unsustainable yes. in the heart to less intense but joyful and therefore yes. not just sustainable but more regenerative internally. Yes. Yes. And how much how much of that was from this podcast? And you must be listening to other podcasts and reading other things. Uh, I don't really listen to any other environmental podcasts. Not often. I think that I think in the 90s, I think I sort of, you know, at that point, I was probably, you know, hooking into what, you know, being aware of what was going on. And I sort of went into it full throttle. But as I say, it wasn't sustainable because I was kind of just getting sort of frustrated. And then my pollution level went up. And it's more recently that I've been trying to reduce my pollution level again. But as as you say, with a different approach, with a more sort of sustainable, joyful approach. So you want to do it. You're not doing it in a sort of stroppy way, like, oh, I'm going to pick up this litter because they've just dropped it and I'm annoyed with it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And is there is this message coming from any other place of this is a joyful thing oh. to be done? Oh, I see. No, 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 no. No, no, I, I don't think, no. I, I think... Is that crazy or what? Uh, I don't know because I don't... I, yes, it is crazy, but I don't listen to a lot of other... I can't think of what anything else that I've listened to regularly other than yours. But I would say that, okay, here's something. So the farm where I get my veg from, when I sort of met the guy, Martin, who grows the veg, runs the farm or whatever, and he was talking about how he enjoys it. I think there are other things that come into people's lives. But I think with your podcast, you sort of bring it all together and you verbalize it. You're very eloquent in the way that you verbalize it. I guess there's a lot of negative emotions in life that are negative, but yet addictive. So you talked about earlier before about outrage and people sort of being in a state of outrage about what's happening, what certain companies are doing, what certain governments are doing or not doing. And it's not a nice feeling, but I think for, it can be almost an addictive feeling. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Outrage. I mean, that's like Fox News is built on that. Yeah. It's very addictive. Yeah. So, and everyone's different. So that's why I'd be very interested to hear from other listeners to your podcast and how they've experienced and how it's influenced them. Because, and I noticed this the way that with your podcast is, you know, the way that you get to know the guests and you take your time to really understand them as an individual before you go into the, you know, the aim method and figuring out what challenge they might want to do is that everyone's psychology is different. So what might motivate me would be different from what might motivate another listener. And when you're listening to a podcast, you've just that, got that little bit of space in your brain where you can just allow it to sort of develop and influence you in a sort of, you know, not just while you're listening to it, but sort of days afterwards and you think, oh, right, so what would Josh do in this situation and how would he (laughs) respond to this particular challenge? I'm so flattered. Is that what you like most or what do you like most about the podcast? Uh, I I think it's a combination of things. I think, it, I think, as I said in the email, the fact that you've got a science background, but you're also vagled with people is quite rare. So the fact that you can explain things, really complex data, very succinctly, but also for the lay person to be able to understand, which is really, really nice because you feel like 
I feel like I'm learning every single podcast. So even as I say in the email, even if it's like bad news and, you know, learning even more about what's happening to the species that we're killing off or whatever, because you explain the way that you explain it and the science with it, it's, I feel like I'm, my mind is getting a workout and learning things, which is great, very rewarding. Um, fascinating here about other people's lives, you know, I really like it when they talk about their day-to-day life and when they're figuring out what kind of challenge they might do. And then when you have them back and you talk about it in the way that you do it in a very non-judgmental way, because your, your pollution level is so low, you know, you could be sort of, you know, you could be high and mighty, but you're not. And you really, you really meet them, meet the guests where they are rather than sort of, having a go at them for them not being where you are in terms of the pollution, their pollution level. So I just find that really uh, inspiring. And it, it has, because I guess it's all around your sort of theories and your practice around leadership. It has, it's not just about that way of communicating with people. It's not just relevant to sort of reducing a person's pollution. It's relevant to all sorts of things in life. So I'm constantly learning find it absolutely fascinating and just the way that your mind will jump about and you'll link one thing to another then you refer to a previous guest or previous episode that I might have heard so as a as a listener that's great and I really like hearing about your everyday life and the little challenges and how you respond to them or maybe I shouldn't say challenges but you know the things that you do your your the way you live your sustainable life when you talk about the science explanations, do you also read the blog or just listen to the podcast? Uh, mainly listen to the podcast because for me, I like, well, as I say, because I have like chronic fatigue, I'm having to rest, so I'm listening to the podcast then. Uh, and also if I'm, you know, doing some housework or whatever. So I, I don't read a lot online because I associate that with work. Like I have to use the computer for work. So I prefer to listen to things. Oh, so there's probably a bunch of podcast, uh, blog posts I should make into podcast episodes. There was one that I did recently on how the simplest argument or simplest explanation I've come up with so far about why uh, offsets don't work. Can I try it with you? Because yeah, sure. this will be a preparation for a future solo yeah. episode probably. Is that when oil or fossil fuels of whatever sort are underground, they're outside the biosphere. They once were in the biosphere, but you know, tech, plate tectonics and so forth pushed them underground far enough that they're not part of the biosphere. If we bring them into the biosphere and process them by burning them, turning them to plastics, making PFOAs or whatever, then they eventually end up in the most stable form, and that's pollution. So that could be carbon dioxide in the atmosphere that causes global warming. It could be plastics that eventually make its way into our bloodstreams or PFOAs, which disrupt our endocrine systems. If something, if we make it into a tree or sequester it into dirt, these are in the biosphere. Once it's in the biosphere, we can shuffle it around. It eventually makes its way into our bloodstreams. It eventually makes its way into our lungs or into the atmosphere or ocean to acidify. The only way to undo taking something from outside the biosphere and putting it in the biosphere is to put it back outside the biosphere. But we don't know how to do that. We talk about carbon capture and sequestration, but there's 
I'm not aware of anything remotely close to that being done on scale or in a way that actually works. What's going on in Iceland is not even close. If we plant some trees, that just moves around within the biosphere. It may delay by 100 years, it ending up as pollution. But the only thing that can counter taking something from taking something from outside the biosphere that becomes a poison in the biosphere is to put it outside the biosphere. We can't do that. If offsets, or for that matter, the concept of net zero promotes, brings something into the biosphere and counters that with shuffling it around within the biosphere, that doesn't change. We've increased the amount of stuff coming to the biosphere that becomes poison. Yeah, so it's about cutting it off at source. It's about not, um, you know, using the fossil fuels in the first place, not taking them out of the ground in the first place. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, leaving them outside the biosphere. Yeah. And anything that promotes in any way brings something new into the biosphere that's going to be poisonous, shuffling it around within just does not change that. Yeah. So that does that make sense? Because that now I've practiced that. Yes, it, yes, it, yes. So it. Look forward to the solo episode that comes from this. Yeah, yeah, no, no, that does make sense. Um, and I think, as you describe that, it makes me think to link back to when you talk about the addiction, so the addiction to fossil fuels and what they provide for us. Because if we could deal with that addiction, we wouldn't keep extracting them. But that addiction is so deep set, I guess, within our economic systems. But yeah, I mean, it's important to to sort of, I think it's very important to sort of point that out because we could easily, I'm thinking about a film, The Poseidon Adventure, where there's this boat that's tipped upside down. I think it was like from the 1960s or something. Anyway, this is a boat in the sea that's tipped upside down and their people are trying to get out of this boat. And there's one scene in the film where they're following a vicar and this vicar reckons he's found a way to, you know, an escape route for the people in this boat. Because this boat is, you know, filling up with water. And there's, you know, and there's, there's a whole group of people following this vicar. And that image came up in my head because that's what I'm thinking about when you're talking about offset. It's like, we could just go down a path, which just, anyway, the vicar, uh, he ends up taking them further down into the, you know, deeper into the, the boat and so they you know they, they don't survive but it, it's like that offset it's just a path that's not gonna go anywhere it's just gonna make ultimately make things worse as you say but it's um it's very um what's the word it's very enticing to people because it gives them the opportunity to do the things that they're addicted to and convince themselves it's all right yeah it's so easy to fall for, I mean, it's scam after scam after scam. And the scam isn't quite the right word because the people suggesting it probably think it would work. It's people who don't understand systems. It's so easy to say, look, this electric vehicle pollutes less than the internal combustion vehicle. It's better. And they don't see that, that that's the pattern that has been driving this problem since you know, the steam engine and before. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to get to, there's a question that I know that has been on everyone's mind since, this, since I read your bio. Tell us about jive dancing. Oh, uh, yeah, modern jive. It's uh, linked to uh, Libot, which is when, uh, when you guys came over and brought rock and roll uh, uh, dancing over to the England around the World War II, and the French had their own sort of version of it. So modern jive is linked back to that sort of a French version called Libot, which was 
like a version of rock and roll dancing, but it's nowhere near as energetic or as athletic. So modern jive or French jive is a partner dance, but it's a very simple partner dance. It's not, you know, you're not throwing people up in the air and, you know, um, so it's an easy partner dance if people want to. We have a show over here called uh, Strictly Come Dancing that people really like. So it's one of those partner dance that, you know, is quite easy to, to learn. You mentioned it after yoga, before walking in the Peak District. So I wonder, if is it more exercise? Is it more contemplative or social? Uh, to go out in the peaks? Well, it's just really pretty out there. I mean, I'm just, I live on northwest Sheffield. So just near the boundary to the, to the Peak District National Park. And um, so, you know, you can, from where I live, I'm lucky enough that I can just walk out. You wouldn't, you know, you don't need a car or anything. You can just walk out into the fields and then keep on going into the Peak District. And it's just just a really nice uh, area, very hilly, um, lovely trees, you know, just a beautiful green area, really. Well, I was asking about, I, that was lovely to hear, but I was asking about the jive dancing. Oh, the jive dancing. Oh, sorry. Uh, oh, sorry. Um I think it's like, it's just sort of something that's fun. I mean, I used to go to nightclubs in my youth, you know, I'm in my 50s now and, and in my sort of mid-30s, I wanted to go dancing, but I didn't want to be up till sort of two in the morning and I didn't want to be drinking alcohol. So I found out about this partner dance and it's just like a bit of fun. It's like, it's a sort of a nod back to sort of younger days, you know, going to nightclubs and things, but it's, just a bit more gentle I like to dance the lead you know it's a bit old-fashioned because they often encourage the men to dance the lead but anyway I like to dance the lead but um because when you're I mean you used to go to nightclubs a lot didn't you and dancing when you're just dancing to the music it takes you out away from your problems yeah there's something about it where you're just in that moment I met my partner there as well which was nice so um but you know it, it just that connection into the music and you just, just letting yourself go. It's, I think it's really nice. Oh, you just took me to another place. Thank you. Well, when you used to go to nightclubs, because you used to be quite a, didn't you used to do artwork as well in night? Yeah. I, uh, I mean, Oh, did you listen to the sex, drugs and rock and roll episodes of mine? Yeah. I thought you were very brave. That was absolutely fascinating. And I, and I thought you were incredibly brave to do it. And it was, very interesting for me because by that point I'd listened to a lot of your episodes so I'd heard a bit about your sort of personal history and you know your life and so on so when you sort of went into your very personal history I thought that was very interesting for me as a sort of background to to who you are and also sort of very brave I mean you know I'm from Britain so maybe you know we're a little bit more cautious about you know sharing things or whatever maybe than uh, but, you know, I thought it's absolutely interesting, really fascinating. And you've lived a lot of different lives. <laughs> yeah, it, seem, it seems that way. To me, it all fits together. It's all been one path. But, yeah, so there's a lot of dancing. So would, would you still go dancing now? Do you go? I went last fall. Uh, some of my favorite DJs, Sasha, Sasha and John Digweed, played nearby. And I went there. And, you know, it wasn't quite the same. It was during the pandemic, so it had to be outdoors. And it wasn't quite the um and their set had to end early compared to how it used to be. And also sometimes a really great beat would come on and I'd be like, Oh, I'm going to dance to this for a while. And like 10 seconds in, I'm tired. I'm like, 
20 years ago, <laughs> I'd be hours. And, you know, so times change. And it was kind of funny to look around and see everyone in the audience is like 50 years old. And Oh, right. Oh, because these were DJs from back in the day, were they? Yeah. I think about, I mean, what you made me think about, though, was I took ballroom dancing classes before that. And actually around that time, and I haven't done ballroom again. So there's like salsa and tango and foxtrot, things like that. Yeah, I'm not going to start that during the pandemic, but I don't know. So there's that. The modern jive jive might be something for you to try. I'm sure they do it over there, but um, because difference with you know it's going to be modern music so you know it's not like the ballroom it's it's, a, it's going to be a faster pace than the ballroom and it's really fun it's really easy to learn um you don't need a partner you just turn up it's very sociable you know you chat to people so it might be something to consider i'll look into it yeah and you know you did talk about the lake the peak district which made me think about the lake district which i presume are two different places yeah the lake district is is to the northwest so that's a bit further up uh further north um so the the peak district's east midland so we're kind of sort of yeah yeah did you listen to the episodes with james rubanks mm, i don't recall i don't maybe he's the shepherd who's in the lake district oh yes he- yes yes i remember him yes and because you could go meet them. <laughs> I, re- I remember with the podcast, I remember the, the stories and what people talked about more than their names. Do you me? I don't remember all the names. So if you say a name to me, I probably wouldn't remember. But if you say what they talked about, I go, oh, yeah, I remember that one. Yeah, because he was when his, his publisher, when his pastoral life, I think it was the title of his second book came out and I got an email suggesting and I'd never heard of him. And then. I saw how big of a following he had and I read his stuff and it's really amazing. Yeah. So I think we're, we must be about 45 minutes here. And I think that we talked about doing the A method, but we're low on time or unless we want to go over an hour. Do you want to keep going? Um, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm happy to keep going. So when you think about the environment, what do you think about? I think about like a Gaia. I think about a sort of system, I think. Well, what, what's in your heart? Like, what do you feel? What, where do you see yourself? What's around you when you're in nature, in your mind? Um, sorry, this sounds a bit new agey and hippie, but it's like a sort of a chi, like an energy source. So I don't have any belief in a God, but there's some kind of source that was spinning around, you know, and solidified and created a universe and that source it's like that sort of living organism the guy of the earth it's like a sort of so right now in England you know because it's you know it's nice and green and all the leaves are out it's like it sort of feeds my system you know it's like it almost feel like a sort of the energy off the trees and the leaves and everything and it feeds my system makes me feel better so then I feel more and then I feel connected into it it's almost like it's all this swirling mass of energy and randomly it's produced planet earth and the rest of the universe and all the other universes and it when I think about that I just think it's a real shame to trash it 
Can you describe what's around you? Like, when do you feel it? What's oh, what I can see right now. So what I can see right now. So out my garden, there's a park. So I'm looking out of my patio doors out into the the garden, and beyond that, there's a park, a small park at the bottom of my garden, and there's some big trees. I I don't know how old. Seventy years, you know, very tall trees, and I'm looking at them right now. And the sun's on those trees, and the you know, there's a little bit of a breeze, and it's like those trees are like a source, a source of energy. And is that giving you? Is that something that? And that it's invigorating. It's it's kind of invigorating and calming at the same time. So being around that, and I can remember as a child being in the woods at the back of the garden in where I grew up. So there was a woods at the back of the garden and a river in that woods. And being in that woods with my twin sister and the birds and all the sounds of the woods and everything growing there. And it's just like, just jam-packed full of life, just absolutely rammed full of life and energy. Can you tell? Yeah, can you share more about that experience or those that type of experience with your twin in the forest? Uh, well, we we'd sometimes make uh, tree camps. Uh, we spent a lot of time with our brothers making tree camps and playing near the river and you know, crossing over the river and building camps and things. And it was like there was an endless source of life force but also resource because it's all like the you know the the trees and the woods and you know and I can remember spending a lot of time climbing up pretty tall trees with my twin sister you know and just working our way up these trees it was just like the most amazing playground for us um and it was just all sort of it sounds odd but it just almost like the magic of it. There was just so much growing and so much going on. And every time, you know, the seasons change and things are different. And there was some wildlife down there. You'd, you'd see badgers and occasionally you'd see deer and stuff like that. It wasn't, you know, loads of wildlife, but it was just a great place. It sounds uh, amazing to hear. Yeah. Can you name some of the emotions that you felt? Uh, adventure. Comfort, because you're sort of being fed by it. Excitement of the adventure. And I don't know, just pleasure, I suppose, of just sort of being in that environment and having fun with my, with my twin sister and my brothers. It so-, so it sounds like it provided the source of these things and then it translated into your experience of it was adventure and comfort and excitement. Yes, Yes. Based on these feelings and this, these experiences, are you interested in coming up with something for you to do today? Yeah. That would be acting on those feelings with the constraints. I mean, I presume you know what, what's coming. It's like, you know, with the constraints of something you do yourself with your own hands that you're not already doing with a physical component. Yeah. Want to come up with something? The thing that springs to mind is car use it's like 25 minute drive to my partner's house so he lives i live in the northwest of sheffield he lives in the southwest but to walk there is maybe an hour and 40 minutes 
you know, and then the same again to come back. So you're looking at over three hours. But, you know, so it's doable. So it's about kind of, is there a way to, and sometimes I drive a part of the way, you can't, there's not a public transport option. Well, it's a very long-winded public transport option. And so is, you know, so the thing that springs to mind is about trying to reschedule, and this would normally be on a weekend, reschedule my day so that I would be able to walk more of those journeys and, and drive less. But then I want it to connect, link back to the woods and the feelings about the woods. So part of that could be exploring different ways to do that journey. So Sheffield, we've, we're seven hills and five rivers. So there's a lot of hills. So it's maybe sort of trying different options in terms of the route, but making sure that there's, there's trees along that route to link back to that feeling in the woods when I was a child. Okay. Yeah. I was going to, before you got to that part, I was going to say, is this, yeah. are you doing it to help the environment or are you doing it for yourself, but uh, for the, to manifest these things, but with the trees. I know. Yeah. I've listened to your podcast enough to know that, to, that if I was ever asked to do what we're doing right now, you know, cause I've thought about it cause I've listened to your podcast so often that it has to be something that has a deep meaning and is enjoyable and it's not a chore. And I think, you know, you get to, well, you're in your fifties, aren't you? You get to, you know, at my age, I'm 55. You look back, you know, when I go back to where I grew up in Virginia water and I walk around the woods in Virginia water, where I grew up in Southern England, it's fascinating to me to see, you know, see how the trees have changed. And I think what would be nice about doing you know, reducing my car, you know, when I'm going over to my partners to reduce the car use and do a bit more walking is to make that connection back. I think that would be um, nourishing. Nourishing sounds like source. It sounds like it fits the bill. And I can't help but comment on uh, when I was in college, I didn't take this class, but there's a class in jazz in the music department. And one of the assignments that they gave was that after class, you had to go to your next place different every time. So however you went home at the end of class, you couldn't take the same route twice. That was part of the assignment. So by the end of the semester, a lot of students are like, they're heading home. It's a couple block walk, but instead they're going by way of Staten Island. And it feels like there's a bit of that in here. Yeah. Yeah. Discovery, improvisation, playfulness yeah yeah definitely and it's about when you're a child that's what you're you know you're more hooked into that when you're a kid you're more you know you naturally you know you seek discovery and adventure and playfulness more and I think you know you talk a lot about why go away why go on holiday or vacation or whatever when there's so much to explore in your local area so I think the other thing that this would do is just help which I do anyway but just to reinforce that exploration of just the local area around me and the connection to that. It sounds like it's a pretty smart goal. Uh, how long would it take? Are you willing to come back and share how it went? And if so, how long would it take for you to do this? Yeah, sure. Um, I don't know, maybe three months. I think it's, yeah, I'd, I'd like to leave it a bit of time because 
Yeah, I think three months, I think. I propose then after we record, but before hanging up, we get out the calendars and schedule something for three months then. Okay, brilliant. That's fantastic. Anything else to wrap up with before close, before picking up next time here? No, uh, just uh, thanks for creating the podcast. It's been brilliant for me. I've really learned so much from it. It's influenced me. And I'm sure that if you do do this on a regular basis with other listeners, you'll, you'll hear similar things, that it's the impact from onto all your listeners and the people in their lives, you know, goes on and on and on. So, yeah, thanks for doing it. You're welcome to you. And I'm going to add, if it's okay, if you don't mind me tacking on a bit at the end, that if there are listeners out there, well, if someone listened all the way through this, they're a listener and presumably they'd be interested in sharing something too. So contact me and let me know if you're interested in, if I should make this more of a regular thing. And if you'd like to be part of it, any listeners out there. And I hope people spread this to others because it kills me that people aren't doing it out of joy. There's so much fun to be had. Absolutely. Janet Alaker, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.